0: These podcasts are being released in conjunction with the 5th National Climate Assessment. They feature conversations among NCA authors and staff about the report, the science behind the report, and the participants' experiences and perspectives. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Enjoy!
1: Welcome to this companion podcast of the 5th National Climate Assessment. My name is Allison Crimmins, and I'm the director of the 5th National Climate Assessment, the United States government's preeminent report on climate change, its impacts, and how we're responding. This podcast series is designed to introduce you to the 5th National Climate Assessment. You'll hear more about what the National Climate Assessment is in a moment. But for now, let me tell you that this is a huge compendium of all of the things we know about climate change risks and impacts here in the U.S and what we're doing to respond to climate change. I often refer to the National Climate Assessment as an atlas or a guide on climate change here in the US. So I will be acting as your guide to the guide. Don't worry, these podcasts are not me reading all 2,000 pages of the report, thank goodness. Instead, these episodes will act as a companion to the assessment, highlighting some of the important findings, helping you navigate the report, hearing the perspectives from the authors themselves, and hopefully sparking some ideas along the way of how you can use this assessment. If you've never heard of the National Climate Assessment, or NCA, these episodes will tell you what it is, why it's important, and how you can use it. We're going to be talking about the ways that climate change affects our lives, our families, our health, how climate change affects where we live and work and play, and how we can protect those things we care about. Maybe you're already familiar with the National Climate Assessment or use it often in your work. These episodes will walk through some of the most important findings from the recently published fifth National Climate Assessment and talk about how the science has advanced, what is new, what is different uh, from the fourth National Climate Assessment, which was released back in 2018. Maybe you're a student or early in your career, or maybe you just wanna work on climate change but aren't sure where your interests lie. We're going to be talking with many of the authors of the National Climate Assessment who work on a broad array of different scientific fields and are tackling the climate crisis from all sorts of different angles. So this is a really great opportunity to hear from those different voices from all around the country and to hopefully be inspired by them and their work. In this first episode, we'll introduce you to the National Climate Assessment and talk about why this is not just a report written by scientists for other scientists, but a helpful resource for you. In the next two episodes, we wanna talk about what people are already doing and what people are already experiencing. So we're gonna talk about the actions that communities are taking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or strengthen resilience in their own communities. And we're gonna talk about what climate change looks like right now, outside your window, in your neighborhood. In the last two episodes, we'll talk about the risks of climate change and how it threatens many of the things we love and value. And we'll end by looking ahead to the future and thinking about uh, the gaps between where we are now and where we might want to go. We're gonna be taking you on sort of a high level road trip around the country but also making sure to pause for some scenic overlooks where we can dig deeper into a specific scientific element or potentially highlight where a community has taken action on climate change.
0: Coming up. Fundamentally, you cannot make informed choices without being informed. And the point of the NCA is to make sure that anyone who wants to be informed can be. What is the NCA? Where did it come from? And why does it exist in the first place? NCA Chief of Staff Chris Avery joins to answer these questions and more.
1: So probably the first thing we want to start off with is what is the National Climate Assessment? And there is no one better to talk to about this. Then Chris Avery, the Chief of Staff of the National Climate Assessment. Hi, Chris. Hey, Allison. We talk all the time uh, (laughs) (laughs) and probably uh, often down into the weeds of things. But this conversation is to step back and let people know what is the National Climate Assessment? So you are in an elevator. You have 30 seconds. What is the National Climate Assessment, Chris?
0: In the simplest terms possible, the National Climate Assessment is a scientific report on the state of the science and what we know about climate change and climate change impacts within the United States. But from a broader perspective, it's actually, I think, a lot more than that. There's a large number of scientists who come together and write this assessment that look across this broad body of knowledge and literature and information sources and weigh all of that evidence. And they're assessing the agreement upon that evidence and the quality of that evidence to try and tell all of us what we should know and where we still don't know things.
1: I often refer to the assessment as an atlas of climate information. So it's not going to necessarily tell you what you should do or where you should go, but it's going to give you all the information that you need to make decisions about the different climate risks people around the country are facing.
0: Absolutely. And I actually think that's a really important thing to start off this conversation by flagging. It's that this report is not saying you must do X. It's saying this is what we know. And if you want to make choices, if you want to have this information be useful and usable to people making decisions, whether that's elected officials or individuals buying a home, you want to have the best information possible so that you can make the best choice for yourself. And that's the goal of this. It's to try and make sure everyone has access to all the information that is important for them to know when they're making choices.
1: Absolutely, And I think it's that piece too, where because it's policy neutral, we're not telling people what they should do or providing recommendations. The report maintains it's really authoritative nature. This is, this is the science and this is the science that you need to know. Absolutely. All right. So take us back even further. Where did the national climate assessment come from?
0: So we're going to go all the way back, eons ago, to 1989. USGCRP initially formed, so USGCRP is the U.S. Global Change Research Program, which is the government organ that is charged with creating and running the process to create the National Climate Assessment. USGCRP started as a presidential initiative under President Reagan in 1989, and it was formalized under law by the Global Change Research Act of 1990, which was actually under President George Bush. The Global Change Research Act, the GCRA, is this law that created both the U.S. GCRP program and the National Climate Assessment. So it's a legally required thing that we put out on a periodic basis that is this statement by our government that's both the scientific knowledge around climate change and the ability to share it to ensure everyone has access to it. And the fact that it was done into law is sort of a statement by our government of how critical this is to the country.
1: And a statement that's been around for a long time, too. The Global Change Research Program has been around since the 90s.
0: Exactly. You know, we celebrated our 30th anniversary, ironically, during COVID, which made it a little less fun of a celebration. But, you know, it was this moment of reckoning of realizing we've been around for a really long time. This is what we've accomplished in our last 30 years, and this is what the next 30 years are likely to look like. And one of the things that I think was a good guess when I wasn't there, so I can't be sure, but that, that's something that was a good guess when USGCRP was created. was an assumption that the National Climate Assessment was going to be this critical tool that's used by people and by governments to make choices, but it's grown into something really fundamental that it's become a piece of information and a structure of communicating that's actually become really fundamental to a lot of choices.
1: So get even more into the nerdy bureaucracy weeds for me and tell me what the Global Change Research Act says that the assessment has to include?
0: The GCRA actually has some specific requirements of what a national climate assessment has to include. And there's basically three. It has to be an assessment, which that actually is a word that has has meaning. You know, we're assessing the state of knowledge that's out there. We're not doing new research or creating new knowledge. We're looking at the knowledge that's already been produced into the world. It has to, I think the terms are discuss, evaluate, and provide meaning to a reader on both sort of what the program is doing and the uncertainty around the findings of what the program is doing. There's this minimum list of topics that we're required to cover that are all related to different topics of national interest to the United States. And it also has to sort of analyze the current trends around a lot of those topics, specifically for the purpose of projecting what the future might look like as a result. So those three particular buckets of information are are required to be present in any national climate assessment. But I'd, I'd also point out, those are pretty broad buckets, <laughs> and the way that it actually gets executed provides us sort of a lot of freedom to make sure that we are writing the report that hits the requirements, but also meets the needs of today. I think if people looked back at NCA1 versus NCA5, you'd see fundamentally really different products. And that's not an accident. That's not a mistake of process. It's actually really intentional because the needs that were present in the world when NCA1 was published are just fundamentally different than the needs of of our country now with NCA5 coming out.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to go back to your second element from the Global Change Research Act that says it has to cover a, a certain list of topics. We have things in there like health and agriculture and energy and some of those topics that you see in or table of contents when we're looking at sectors or groups of people across the entire US. But one of the things that's not in the GCRA is uh, a mandate to have regional chapters. And I think that's something you've seen growing out of the NCAs over time, this need for more regional specific information. And so on top of those topics that we have to cover as part of the Global Change Research Act, we also have these chapters that are focused on regions written by authors from those regions that provide a little bit more specificity in those geographic parts of the U.S.
0: That's one of the things that I've I've watched you as the director of NCA5 sort of really have to navigate in a challenging way of recognizing that, yeah, there are these structures that are obligated on us by the law that creates this report. But sometimes in some ways, the needs of the world don't perfectly match up to that Yeah, with advances in downscaling and much more highly localized climate information, suddenly now we have this ability to provide information to people about what's happening in their city, not just what's happening in their state or their region. And that can be challenging to have to include all of this information when there's also sort of this fundamental floor that we have to hit on all this other stuff. And you've been pretty heavily involved in sort of providing access and the materials of downscaling for this report to empower authors to you know, include that information. It's been interesting to watch that evolve.
1: Yeah, it's interesting even outside of NCA to watch that evolve as so much of that climate modeling information, those projections, those data sets are just so much more available to people now than they ever were before. And that's a great thing. I hope the National Climate Assessment actually acts as sort of an entryway for people to to access that information on their own. So, you know, we're we're building something called the NCA5 Atlas which is going to house a lot of that downscaled climate projections, those temperature and precipitation values where people can open it up and zoom into their state or their county and pick their variable of interest. Do you want days over 95 or days over 100 or extreme precipitation? Do you want it under this scenario or this global warming level? And they can access that information that's most relevant to the decisions that they're facing. It's an exciting time to be in because climate data, is so much more available to people than it ever was before.
0: And this report is being written by literally hundreds and hundreds of people from all sorts of different places of expertise and locations around the country. And that's part of what drives, I think, a lot of the desire to have deeply localized information because climate's experienced at a local level it where you live, not necessarily at this global scale. I think part of the value of having the author pool that we have that is just so incredibly big and creates a management challenge that you and I lived with is also that, you know, having that sort of diversity of experience and knowledge and expertise and lived reality makes a better report.
1: Yeah. And it makes a report that's responsive to what people really need.
0: I agree. We talked about the the GCRA, but there's also a whole lot of other federal laws that sort of oversee a project of this scope and scale. And I just think that's worth mentioning because those rules and systems that we use to create the report are really, really important because it's compliance with those that gives us things like the transparency of the project, the public comment process. We've had a record-setting number of public comment and public engagement opportunities with NCA5. So in a very real way, this report was written in public. That amount of transparency, I think, is what can give a reader a sense of trust that this is an authoritative report, it's a credible statement of fact and knowledge, and that the entire process is worthy to be trusted because we did it in public.
1: You know, you mentioned how the NCA's have evolved over time and that NCA1 doesn't look like NCA5 intentionally. I think if we didn't have that public input, we wouldn't have any sense of how these things are evolving. And NCA5 might look a lot like NCA1. But I think in large part, it is that very public element of writing the report, of getting comment, of getting input along the way, of having authors from all over the country that helps each NCA build off the one before it. Do you want to also mention the peer review process because that's certainly one where there are a lot of, you know, rules and regulations about a report like this and, and how the peer review is conducted?
0: Sure. So, like most scientific documents that are based on sort of scientific literature, we send the NCA through a peer review process. And the way that that functions for us is that we ask the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to put together a panel of, I think it was around 15 or 20 scientists who all have deep climate expertise. And we give them a copy of the report as it's about halfway through development. And we also simultaneously with that do a public comment period. So we basically release the draft into the world. And the, you know anyone in the world can access the report and provide us comments on it. We review and make changes based on those comments. But simultaneously to that, This panel of scientific experts goes through the whole report with a fine tooth comb from their perspective as people deeply familiar with the literature that the report is itself assessing and are are taking a look at it to understand, are we accurately interpreting the science as it's coming in? Are the authors missing key pieces of information that are not being covered? And if so, addressing that on the back end. So there's a really intensive peer review process that's built in, again, in public, in the middle of the report development process, which is also important, because you don't want to do your peer review at the very end when everything's sort of baked and done. Like you want to do it early enough in the process that if people see a problem or see something missing or just could better communicate something, you have the time and the space to to really adequately respond to it in a way that that matters.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to add this all up here. We've got about 500 authors on NCA five. 250 technical contributors. We had 41 review editors. We had a slew of chapter coordinators, at least 13 of them from our offices, working with the author teams. We had 14 people on our federal steering committee, which is kind of the, almost like the board of directors managing the National Climate Assessment. You just mentioned the 18 peer reviewers from the National Academy. We have more than 40 staff members between our USGCRP offices, and our technical support unit. We have thousands of people who participated in the public engagement events, hundreds and hundreds of public commenters and agency reviewers. And we also had about 800 artists from all around the country who contributed pieces of artwork for the assessment that you'll, you'll hear about in a later podcast. So I don't, I've lost count here, but we're, we're in the thousands of people who contributed to this assessment.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I, including people who participated in public comment and our our sessions and webinars at the very beginning where we tried to bring in a ton of other public comment, I would be willing to guess that over 5,000 people have participated in the development of NCA5 over the last few years. And to me, that's part of what makes it in this amazing project.
1: It's amazing to see the choreography of all of these people who are contributing what they're so good at or what they care about or their own lived experience or, or their own expertise. And they all contribute their piece, but it, it comes together into something that's even bigger than the sum of its parts.
0: And I'd point out like, this is part of why when you have a project at this scale, you need someone like appointed as a director who does this full time or a chief of staff who does this full time, because this, there's a reason these things take years to write, you know, part of, value of doing it over that long of a period of time is it gives you the time and space to do eight rounds of review and a six month long public and peer review and all these other things because the topics and content of this report are really, really critical. So investing the time to make something really, really valuable is worth it.
1: So what value does the National Climate Assessment provide to to the United States and really to the whole world?
0: There are a lot of things in this world that we care very deeply about that climate change puts at risk. You know, the people, the places, the things that we love, the places we live. There are also a lot of decisions that people have to make that are impacted by climate change. Where do you want to live? (laughs) Where and how do you want to invest your time or your money or build your business or, or build a career? The policies that a government makes, whether we're talking city or state or federal or tribal, those all get put into place to encourage community choices. All of those decisions have an element that are connected to a physical environment. And if that physical environment is changing around us in completely unprecedented ways right now, we just can't rely on our understanding of the past anymore to guess what our future will be. So fundamentally, you cannot make informed choices without being informed. And the point of the NCA is to make sure that anyone who wants to be informed can be, you know, to provide that climate information in ways that are both relevant and accessible to people who want to make these choices. And I personally think that's one of the most important things that the NCA does. Assessing science to inform your choices is not always easy. The thing that I think the NCA does really, really well is it takes all of this technical information and makes it accessible and usable by anyone. You don't have to be a technical expert with a PhD. You don't have to go to school for years and pore over scientific journals. You don't have to be an expert in oceanography or atmospheric chemistry or health sciences. You can just read the NCA because all of the experts have already done that work for you. So the NCA takes all of this knowledge that's often really, frankly, inaccessible to the general public and translates it into this simple language that any average person can understand, and then also puts that knowledge into the public domain. So in a very real way, what the NCA is doing is democratizing access to science. We're empowering people to make the choices that are best for them by making sure they have all the information that might be useful to support whatever choice they wanna make. This is this incredibly important and useful source of information for the citizens of this country, and I'm just incredibly proud to be a part of it. Coming up.
2: It is important to note that, although I like other scientists very much, this is not a report for them. This is a report for the general public, people who don't have time or inclination to delve through all of the scientific literature, because frankly, they have better things to do.
0: NCA5 authors Kate Marvel and Adam Paris join us to talk about climate science and how this report connects to your life.
1: We're joined by Kate Marvel, who is a senior climate scientist at Project Drawdown, the world's leading resource for climate solutions. Before joining Project Drawdown, Kate spent seven years as a research scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies and Columbia University. Hi, Kate. Hello. And we are joined as well by Adam Paris, who is a senior consultant for climate planning at ICF. Adam previously served as the deputy director of climate science and services at the mayor's office of resiliency in New York city. Welcome Adam. Hi. And Kate is our chapter lead for the NCA five climate trends chapter while Adam served as an author on our adaptation chapter. We're really happy to have you here today to talk about climate science and how to use it. So Kate, maybe I'll start with you. In our previous segment, I just had this great conversation with Chris Avery, our National Climate Assessment Chief of Staff about the assessment itself and what an assessment is, how the National Climate Assessment came about and who writes it. And I know you're someone who publishes a lot of scientific papers. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how working on the National Climate Assessment was different from your regular kind of day job as a scientist.
2: I guess the first very positive difference was that if I called up like 10 of the best scientists in America and said, hey, let's write a paper together, you know, everybody would say, oh, I'm busy or I'd love to, but I just can't. And this was such a cool opportunity to be like, who is the best, who is the best scientist, who is the best collaborator, and, and work with them. Um, so, so that was a really incredible experience, getting to work with the chapter team of just really, really smart and also really nice people. I'm not going to lie, there were a lot of rules. Most of those rules probably made sense. And, you know, we we definitely want to make this report as useful as possible. We want, we want to make the process transparent. We want to be as ethical as possible. Big fan of federal ethics legislation, for sure. But, you know, it did mean that there were more rules to follow than there would be in, in a scientific paper. And also in a scientific paper, you kind of send it out. You have a couple, maybe anonymous peer reviewers look over it and they either say this is terrible or this is terrible, but we'll let it be published. They never really say it's great, but you, you pretty much only go through one or two rounds of review. With this, we went through, I, I don't remember, I've blacked it all out, Allison. How many rounds of review did we go through? I mean, at least seven seven rounds of review and like different people every time right the yeah. public other scientists the agencies the national academies so this is this is a very very reviewed document
3: a really important function of an assessment is to evaluate the existing scientific literature so there's all these studies out there that people publish in individual papers That are very discrete. It's like we have this one question, and we're really going. We're going to collect some data on it, and we're going to sort of prove it right or wrong, and we're going to add to what we know. This looks at all of those studies and tries to say where is the balance of evidence and how strong is that evidence. Like, do we really feel confident about what we know in terms of? the way the climate's unfolding, or the impacts it'll have in the future. And that's really important because I think that's not a distinction people tend to make, but it's something that they can then count on in the national assessment.
1: Adam, you're kind of touching on something here I wanted to ask about as well, that the audience of the national climate assessment is really different than the audience of a typical scientific journal article, right?
3: yeah i mean from a legislative standpoint the audience is congress but it's a public facing interactive site and document you can jump around there are people who communicate about climate who will use the assessment there are people in different levels of government who will use the assessment educators who may use it in the classroom it's a varied audience
2: it is important to note that although I like other scientists very much, this is not a report for them. This is a report for the general public, people who don't have time or inclination to delve through all of the scientific literature because, frankly, they have better things to do. So I think a really important aspect of this report is, Allison, how many references are in it?
1: Around 8,500 references,
2: yeah. 8,500 references and 300 data sets. And, and basically we did all this work so you don't have to do it. It's something that I found really challenging, I'm sure Adam found the same, is figuring out how to be concise, figuring out how to boil this enormous literature down to things that people can use to really sort of pick out what is important, what are the things that we definitely know with a high level of confidence, what are the things that are going to help us
1: make decisions? Yeah, I think the authors did not appreciate the word limits in their chapters, but I hope that the readers do, because, you know, taking those 8,500 references and and getting them into something that's concise and, and readable is part of the author's job on that CA. Adam, you work with a lot of state and local communities on the ground, and I know Kate mentioned that a lot of the author's work is to capture the climate science that's most relevant to our readers or or that people need to know to inform their decisions. What are some of the things that the people and the communities that you're working with most need to know?
3: Man, the needs of policymakers and government decision makers and communities are different, and varied. The first thing to recognize is the needs of policymakers and government decision makers are different than communities. But if I were to identify a common thread or sort of a shared set of burning questions, it would be, what are the risks I face today? How will those risks change? And what can be done about it? For example, somebody working for a city government might want to know, where is the flood now? That helps with emergency preparedness, helping people flood-proof their homes. How will the flood risk change? That helps plan and implement projects to reduce flooding, like raising homes or roads, or considering nature-based solutions, like restoring wetlands and beaches as a buffer, and what can be done about it. That question sort of gets at. This is our opportunity to think about outside the box and create new opportunities for stronger communities. Often for government decision makers, you have to first build trust because a community member's going to think about those questions in reverse order, especially in areas where folks are underserved or have faced historic discrimination. They're living to paycheck to paycheck, They've gotta get their kids to school and themselves to work. So their first question is, what can be done about it? I'm interested in the details after you tell me what's being done about it. And you know, coming back to the NCA, there's a lot of information on all three questions, the risk we face today, the risks we face tomorrow, and even some information about what approaches work to reduce those impacts or what has worked for some people and what hasn't. And because it's an authoritative source, the government staff can substantiate their case to regulators or higher levels of government regarding those risks.
1: Great. You've worked in the federal government and outside of the government. Does that resonate with you? Have you? Have you seen people using the assessment in that similar way?
2: Yeah, I think what we're seeing, especially with young people, young people are concerned, young people are worried, but young people are also incredibly engaged and they don't need to be scientists to care about climate change. I think there's a real recognition that this is not just a scientific issue. No matter what your career is going to be, no matter what your interests are, this is an issue that you're going to have to deal with that's going to touch you. So I think that is another community that could use this assessment is students, because we really have tried very hard to do a good job of laying out the facts in an understandable manner as a young person myself back in the day, reading assessments, reading reports, and and thinking, wow, no other scientific field lays out everything it knows so clearly. That is an incredibly useful resource to have.
1: Kate, I wanted to touch back on something Adam said when he was talking about what are the risks, how are those risks changing, what can be done? One of the things he mentioned was actually thinking outside the box and creating new opportunities for for stronger communities. Can you speak a little bit more to some of the benefits of mitigation and adaptation actions we discuss in the assessment?
2: Yeah, I think there can be a tendency in talking about climate change to just tell a story that happens in the far future and is invariably a tragedy, right? You say if mitigation action is taken, if all the right things are done, then maybe we can expect a slightly less bad climate decades from now. And that's not a very motivating story. That's not a very energizing story. And it's also not a completely true story. Because when we talk about mitigation actions, when we talk about the things that we could choose to do to reduce greenhouse gases, which are the major drivers of climate change. A lot of those activities also have what we call co-benefits, basically good stuff that happens and good stuff that happens immediately or within a few years. So for example, there's a whole huge evidence base that suggests that reducing fossil fuels will also lead to better air quality and that's a benefit that's not going to show up for our children and grandchildren it's going to show up for us right now we also know that doing things like natural climate solutions restoring and protecting ecosystems those things help us adapt to climate change they also help mitigate it but they also help preserve biodiversity and all of the things that that does for us so I think there's there's a story that we can tell where we talk about the benefits of these mitigation actions, which are going to appear in the short term, not just in the long term.
3: I think Kate is spot on, and I would add the same applies to adaptation. Every year, for example, in New York City, about 150 people die as a result of heat waves. And we know those heat waves are going to get worse. Whatever we can do to provide better resources for people to get to cooling centers, to provide shade, uh, reduce the indoor air temperature in buildings now, has immediate benefits. And then those extend as we get further out into the future and see whether and how those heat waves get longer and happen more frequently.
1: Then we talked a, a little bit about climate and state government, a little federal government in there, educators, students who use the report. Are there other audiences that you interact with in your day-to-day or maybe during the process of writing the National Climate Assessment that you see using the assessment?
2: In my day-to-day, I work a lot with our teams that engage with the private sector, people who are making decisions about where do we put our assets, What is climate change going to mean for us on different timescales? But we also work with people who say, I'm interested in climate mitigation. I look at these projections of what the earth is going to look like, what the nation is going to look like at four degrees Celsius. I don't want that. I don't want to go there. Where should I invest? Where should I put my money and my talent and my efforts? And I think, you know, this report, is really useful because it can help to guide those private sector decisions as well.
3: Yeah, that's been my experience as well. I also would underscore that more and more, I think this is a story that's still unfolding. In other words, the national climate assessment is still building a relationship with varied audiences, but I think more and more educators are using materials from the national climate assessment in the classroom. It's very very rich in graphics and very informative figures which means it's really easy to pop into a slide and talk about in the classroom setting from sort of k to gray and i think community organizations can use the national climate assessment of course there may be some Sort of generalization. I mean, there are regional chapters that are very specific to place, but when you're talking about a community, they're really sort of focused on their neighborhood, but it's still the broader concepts and the nature of sort of the bigger picture still helps, I think, to elevate people's awareness and understanding of what's going
1: on. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about the assessment is. The way it's structured allows people to sort of interact or use the pieces that are most useful to them. And then, you know, as Kate said, this this isn't necessarily a report written for other scientists, but there are pieces there that are helpful to scientists. So we have an atlas of our temperature and precipitation projections, and we have traceable account sections that describe areas of uncertainty and research gaps. So there's kind of like different pieces of the assessment that, that people can connect to. Um, All right, so I'm going to step back from NCA a little bit here. And Kate, I want to ask you more of a general or almost philosophical question here. Why do you think it is so important for people to understand climate change?
2: I think it's not important if you don't live on Earth, but most of us do. I think it's really important to understand how the planet that you live on is changing and how unprecedented those changes are. I recognize that I am a nerd and I care about the physics of the Earth system because I think this is the best planet and it is incredibly beautiful and just amazing that we understand as much as we do but i don't expect everybody else to be as interested in the physics of the earth system as i am but the thing is no matter what your primary issue is no matter what you care about you care about climate change that is going to affect the decisions that you make in the future that's going to affect the choices that are going to be available to you and so i think that we approach this report in that spirit that nobody is going to focus as much on the science as as we are because people have better things to do. But we want to make this really, really useful to give people who have expertise that we don't the tools they need to make those decisions.
1: So now you know a bit more about what the 5th National Climate Assessment, or NCA5, is, how it came into being, how it's developed, who writes it, who reviews it, who uses it. If there's one thing I hope you took away from the conversation so far, it's that this assessment is for you. Yes, you. It's not just something scientists write for other scientists. It's not just a book gathering dust on a shelf. The NCA is a useful tool for a huge range of people, and I think there's something for everyone in here. Or to be more precise, as Kate Marvel said, something for everyone who happens to live on Earth. Now that you know what this thing is, I hope you'll keep listening to learn more about what the assessment says. In our next four episodes, I'll be joined by more inspiring authors of the 5th National Climate Assessment, so you can hear about some of the findings of NCA5 directly from those experts. We will be covering things like how people across the U.S. are already addressing climate change, We'll take a virtual road trip in episode three to hear from people across the country about the impacts of climate change they are experiencing. Then we'll talk to experts in climate change risk to discuss the things we value that are threatened by climate change. And finally, in our fifth episode, we'll head back to the future to discuss the trajectory of climate science from the early National Climate Assessments leading up to NCA5 and looking ahead to NCA6 and beyond. I hope that in these next episodes, you hear our authors talking about places you know and love, about climate concerns that you might share, about the topics you're interested in, and the things you value. I hope you hear about some of the same challenges you might be facing, but also I hope that you are inspired by the people taking action across the country, and by the courage and the voices of our authors. I hope you hear a reflection of yourself in these episodes and in this assessment and that it motivates you to be a part of the climate solution. Thank you so much for listening. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with the beautiful poem Startlement that Ada Limon, the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States, wrote specifically for the 5th National Climate Assessment. And if you are a fan, you might just want to stick around for a special bonus podcast episode on art and poetry in the National Climate Assessment. With that, let me turn it over to the wondrous Ada Lamon to close us out.
4: It is a forgotten pleasure, the pleasure of the unexpected blue bellied lizard skittering off his sunspot rock, the flicker of an unknown bird by the bus stop. To think, Perhaps we are not distinguishable and therefore no loneliness can exist here. Species to species in the same blue air, smoke, wing flutter buzzing, a car horn coming, so many unknown languages. To think we have only honored this strange human tongue. If you sit by the riverside, you see a culmination of all things upstream. We know now we were never at the circle center. Instead, all around us, something is living or trying to live. The world says, what we are becoming, we are becoming together. The world says, one type of dream has ended and another has just begun. The world says, once we were separate, and now we must move in unison.
1: The
0: NCA5 companion podcast was produced by the US Global Change Research Program. These podcasts are intended to provide context and perspectives from the authors and participants of NCA5. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Production by Chris Avery and Allison Crimmins, who also served as host. Editing, mixing, and scoring by Mallory Hinks. Thank you to our guests, Adam Paris and Kate Marvel. Thanks also to Aliza Lustig, Aaron Grade, Lori Howell, and Mike Cooperberg for their support in developing this series. Thank you also to Ada Lamone, the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States for providing her poetry to the project. The NCA is the U.S. government's premier report on climate change impacts, risks, and adaptation across the nation. It is a congressionally mandated interagency effort that brings together hundreds of experts from federal, state, and local governments, as well as the academic, nonprofit, and private sectors. Information about the NCA5, including the process used to create the assessment, can be found on the NCA5 website at nca2023.globalchange.gov.